Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Rivenis. I got a Facebook post from Brit a week or two ago mentioning that her favorite episodes had to do with historical true crime cases involving poison. Well, we've got an episode today that I think Brit is going to enjoy. I'm very pleased to be joined by A.J. Griffith Jones, author of Prisoner 4374, a book about the notorious 19th century serial poisoner and killer, Dr. Thomas Neal Cream. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Lovely to talk to you. This is really an interesting character that you write about here. Admittedly, I'm not familiar with him, but but some of my Ripperologist listeners probably know him. He, he's famous for supposedly having confessed to be Jack the Ripper, uh, just before his execution. And we'll definitely talk about that and his connection or lack of connection to the case. But but Dr. Cream, the focus of our our episode today, had his own disturbing resume that easily stands alone in crime history. That's right. He was the notorious Lambeth poisoner. So where did you first learn about Dr. Cream and how did you decide to write a book about him? Um... I'm what I like to call myself an accidental ripperologist. I actually moved to London in my teens um, in the 80s and um, started reading Jack the Ripper books. Um, you know, it's very expensive to live down there, so um, didn't go out a lot. So I spent a lot of time reading the books. I went on a couple of the Jack the Ripper tours, got very interested in one of the um, witness statements from the the Ripper case. Um, which mentioned a gentleman wearing a horseshoe tie pin. Now, the only photograph that I'd actually seen of somebody wearing a horseshoe tie pin was a photograph of Dr. Crane. So I decided to go to the Old Bailey and read the transcript of Crane's trial. And um, I found he was quite an interesting guy, and I just thought, well, you know, perhaps I can look into this, and maybe he was Jack the Ripper. So that was what started me off. The writing style that you choose is pretty unique. Can you explain that, that style and why you chose it? Yeah, it it is. Um, I've had criticism and praise <laughs> for, for that. Um, it was a very hard decision. But if you imagine that Cream's been with me for over 30 years, 
on and off. Um, I've travelled extensively, so I haven't worked on this full time um, until the last couple of years. So he's been with me for a long time. I've kind of read everything that there was to know about him. I've done an awful lot of research. I've read, um, obviously, I got the prison archives file and um, most of my information comes from there. So in that, he's become almost a part of me. I've, I've been with him and I, I felt like I got to know his character so the best way for me to portray his story was to do it in his own words, especially after reading the prison transcripts. So basically, it, it was a difficult decision, but I felt that it was the right one for me. It was the best way that I could portray the character that he really was. And for those wondering what, what we're talking about, you, you've written the book as an autobiography, and Dr. Cream's voice is in the first person. So let's talk about this ne'er-do-well. <laughs> Can you talk about his background? What were his early years like? Yeah, he was actually born in uh, Glasgow in Scotland. Um, his parents were quite religious. Uh, and his, when he was about six years old, they emigrated to Canada. His father managed a lumber merchants and he had a very normal upbringing. Um, he went to Sunday school. He had a very happy home life. Um, he actually went into an pr- apprenticeship at 16 at the lumber merchants where his father was working. And the 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 idea was that he was going to take over and manage the business someday when his father retired. Um, but his mother became ill and uh, Thomas nursed her for a couple of years when she was sick. And um, it was at that point that he decided that he would um, like to do medical training and become a doctor. And his father thought that it was it would be a good investment for his son to have a good career. So um, he sent him off to Montreal. And he went to McGill University. Can you talk just a bit about the relationship that he had with his family? Um, yeah, he really he was closest to his sister, Rachel. And um, Rachel was a bit of a homebody and um, they had a very close relationship. He did go and stay with his brother, Daniel. And Daniel was one that was petitioning to get him out of um, jail. But he had a very difficult relationship with Daniel's wife and when he actually came out of prison and he went to stay with them she didn't make him very welcome and so it kind of caused a rift between the two brothers so um, it was really Rachel that was the one that was he was close to his younger sister and um, Rachel was the only one that actually came over to the UK and visited him when he was in prison in Newgate awaiting trial. So he decides to leave Canada and go to England for medical school and to escape a marriage. And he's involved in some petty crimes, carousing, n- nothing violent, not nothing that might predict the serial killing spree that he commits later in his life. Yeah, that, that's right. There's nothing really that you would think would trigger it off. I mean, um, you have got sequence of events. I mean, you've got, um, he's very money orientated. So hence he had his um, little insurance fraud going on there. And he's a bit of a Casanova, but he was a Casanova that was absolutely terrified of commitment. And so he had this situation where he um, got his fiancée pregnant and was forced to marry her. And it absolutely terrified him. And so he absconded to back to England to, to escape after his shotgun wedding. So very complex character. 
Um, but still, at that point, you wouldn't have thought that he would have become a murderer. There was nothing really to indicate there that he was um, sinister. Can you talk a little more about his marriage to to Flora Brooks? What once he's fled to England, she doesn't live very long, does she? No, um, she. Cream kind of did a botched abortion. I don't want to go into too much detail because obviously that's a lot in the book, but Cream did a botched abortion on Flora and she became very ill. But hence the shotgun wedding. And she recovered. But when he absconded, um, she kind of took to her bed and she died 12 months later of consumption. So he eventually moves back to Canada as kind of a playboy widower uh, once his wife has passed and the smoke has cleared a little, and he sets up a practice. Can, can you talk about his first practice and how he makes his living? Well, obviously, he's had a, a hard time in Canada before, so the first thing he did was to go down to um, uh, Dundas Street, and he opened his practice there, which, you know, the area, it wasn't a, a very affluent area. And there was a, there was quite a big call for backstreet abortionists there, and he made fairly good um, business. And then when he moved, he decided to move his premises to Chicago. And um, there were a fair few quack doctors over there, but also he decided that you know he he could employ the services of a a Negro lady who could help him like nursing the patients and also that it wouldn't have to be done at his clinic so he could take the business away so then if anything happens he's not actually tied to the circumstances in which the patient becomes ill or you know they pass away or um, there's any accident that happens during the surgery so they they have this situation where um, the the nursemaid um, the lady that's assisting she will rent a room for an hour at a time and the doctor will actually be on a call out and go there to the patient and they're just literally paid per patient um, for the services. So that was kind of the business that he was making there. And then also with his um, quack remedies for um, treatment of skin and his eventually his epileptic cure as well. Tell us the story of Catherine Gardner, if you don't mind. Her death forces him to move from Canada to the U.S. Yeah, um, he gets he gets tied up in her accidental death. A lot of the the kind of the press reports behind that is actually cream. You know, he draws a lot of attention to himself. He's pointing the finger at the at the pharmacist, and he's dragging other people into the case, and. If he hadn't have been shouting so loud about this, I don't think he actually would have been caught up in it so so much. Because in in the initial days, um, the police were quite satisfied that it was an accidental death. And then Cream, being what he is, draws attention to himself and starts blaming the pharmacist. And um, that's what causes the detectives to look a little bit deeper at what had been going on. And how did she die? It was actually chloroform. Um, at the outhouse, outside of his clinic. So it wasn't actually on the premises, it was out in the backyard. You mentioned that that it was an accidental death earlier, but do you believe Cream was really responsible for it? Yeah, yeah, I do. His, um, His thesis at McGill was actually on chloroform, so it's got all his traits. So why an abortion doctor? Was this his 
chosen field, or did he shift to it as a reason to meet vulnerable young women? No, I actually think it's him trying to make a quick book, to be honest, because it it was quite um, business was rife in those days. You know, it was quite there was quite a call for, you know, it's the the unheard thing, you know, unmarried mothers or people getting pregnant. And, you know, in the case of, say, with Kate Gardner, she she'd met somebody and um, became pregnant and her, her her beau, her lover disappeared. And so she's kind of left in a situation where, you know, she can't go to her employer's because she's pregnant she can't go back to her family um so the easiest thing is to get rid of it and that happened quite you know quite quite often um it wasn't uncommon and so i think in cream's case it's just him seeing an opportunity where he can make money and especially in somewhere like chicago a much bigger city you know there's also quite a few brothels and things around so um for him i think it was a money-making venture more than anything else and he sets up shop near one of chicago's red light districts, a pretty near perfect place for his plans. That's right, yeah. And do you know, actually, which is, um, since I wrote the book, um, I've actually done a little bit of investigation with a Chicago journalist, and we found that there might have even been more crimes that could be contributed to cream as well, um, besides the ones that we've, you know, that he's already been charged for. So um, there was a death of a girl called Alice Montgomery, and... um, she died in a hotel bathroom, but it just the location of where she went to the pharmacist to get her, her tablets that she needed to take to induce the um, induce a miscarriage. Um, it, it's a very, very close location to Cream's um, offices in his clinic there. So it's very, very likely that he was involved in that as well. I don't know if you've read Karen Abbott's Sin in the Second City or not, but but it paints a pretty incredible picture of Chicago at the turn of the century, the sheer size, and it's almost a vacuum. And these young women come into town looking for work, responding to ads and papers, and just disappear. They're just swallowed by the city. H.H. Holmes, of course, is is another doctor operating in Chicago in the general time frame, although his motives and methods of murder are far different than Dr. Cream's. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there was an awful lot of doctors doing the same thing, um, but also a lot of legal practices as well. So um, it, for him, it's just about opportunity being in the right place at the right time. Right, right. So so starting in 1880 and continuing into 1881, a number of women associated with Dr. Cream and his clinic are murdered. Yep. Can you talk about Cream's M.O.? What are some of the shared characteristics of these killings? Yeah, pretty much it, it didn't change very much from the 1880s to what he was doing in 18, um, 1892. It didn't really change. Cream preferred to use strychnine, and um, he would use the pure form of strychnine, which is called Nux Vomica. And um, what he would do was put them inside gelatin capsules, and it's quite... You can detect it in an autopsy because it will preserve the the innards of the stomach. But actually, he was putting it in the gelatin capsules. And there wasn't any um, suspicion, really, on when he started to do this because the person can't taste it. Um, It's quite a prolonged death, um, probably lasts about an hour. You have um, facial contortions. You have a fit. So 
in some of the the patients that he's treating, for example, the Daniel uh, Daniel Stott that, that he was involved with, one of his patients, he's treating him with a small dose of strychnine, which actually is, well, he believes to be controlling his epileptic seizures. So in that way, the small doses of strychnine are actually helping. If you increase the dose of the strychnine, then what it will do is actually cause a seizure, but a very, very strong one. And so then you're getting convulsions, you're getting vomiting. Um, a lot of the times the patient could gag on their own vomit and very, very painful, um, painful death. The, the, the patient is unable to control the spasms and they will get chest pains. They'll be unable to breathe. So very, very prolonged, painful death. But he's using that strychnine in the 1880s. But then again, he's using it in the 1890s. It's something that um, he seems to prefer and it works very well um, in his modus operandi. His motive that you propose in your book is is pretty interesting. He doesn't seem to have the, the same motive that other killers have. No, he doesn't. But um, in his early days, um, now from reading the the archives, I believe that he was infected with syphilis. And so this is really affecting his judgment and his thinking. It's giving him nightmares. Um, he's not really thinking straight. And also, you know, it's revenge for the type of woman that infected him in the first place. And, you know, he's he's driven by that. And then later on, when he becomes involved with this lady, Julia Stott, for whom he becomes imprisoned, it's also, you know, a revenge to seek out women that have done harm to him, as he sees in his eyes. And the women coming into his clinic are not, in in his mind, virtuous young ladies. Their, their reputations to him are tainted. Yeah, that's right. Um, Cream's moving in, in a couple of different circles. The people that he's meeting at his clinic and his every day are exactly, as you say, they're not the virtuous women. And it's quite easy. You know, he's very good looking. He's quite a debonair man. And he's very charismatic and it's very easy for them to talk to him and go to him as a doctor. But then you've got the other circles that he's working in, uh, that, that he's, um, you know, he, his social life, the social circles that he's he's involved in. And there are people there, you know, trying to match him up with young ladies that they think he's a perfect suitor. You know, he's a doctor. He's a professional man. He's um, very musically talented. He, he's very charming so that. You know, it completely conflicts the the kind of man that he is. But um, everybody that meets him, you know, they find him very, very charismatic. There are two sides to his business. Of course, he has his regular medical practice, but he also runs, and you alluded to this earlier, this pill manufacturing operation. And he's putting all sorts of high potency stuff in them. And, And in the late 19th century, none of this was regulated. Pretty much anyone could create a pill and advertise it to perform all sorts of miracles. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. He's making concoctions. Um, so some of the, as I said, some of the medication that he's making is, is using the strychnine and um, laudanum and, and, and other Dover pills. So he's got this concoction that he's making for epilepsy. He had a huge client base for that. People really believed that it worked. 
Now, there's no medical evidence now that we can say it did or it didn't work, but the people that went to him actually believed that it worked. But then, you know, on the other side of it, you've got that he can actually use that strychnine when he wants um, against, against his clients. So um, it's, it's working both ways for him. And then when he went to London later on, he's um, creating, you know, t- tablets that he's, He's lacing with strychnine again, but then he's telling the young ladies that it's good for their complexions. It will give them whiter skin. It will give them clearer skin. So um, he hasn't really changed very much in a decade that he's using the same um, prescriptions. I know that this is hard to say, and you're still researching possible murders he was involved in. But but how many women do you think he killed in Chicago up to the point where he meets Julia Stott? (laughs) Do you know what? I really couldn't answer that. But I think um, I think I mean, you've got the couple of the couple of deaths that happened at his clinic. Apart from that, I really couldn't say there's the possible Alice Montgomery, which hasn't been really attributed to cream yet. But I think that's a possibility that there, there could be a few more. Who knows? So Julia Stott becomes cream's undoing. And it really seems like he met his match with Miss Stott. Exactly. I think she's smarter than him. I think she's, uh, yeah, she outwitted him. Can you talk about how they met and how their relationship progressed? Yeah. Well, as I said, um, Daniel Stott became a customer of uh, Creams. Now, they lived, uh, the Stotts lived in Garden Prairie in Boone County. So it's a train ride into Chicago, into the city to get the prescription. Now, Daniel Stott's not a well man. He's a, he's a bit overweight. He's um, epileptic. And so he, he decides to procure um, Cream's remedy to, to help him. And he believes that it is helping him. But St- Daniel Stott is 60 years old. Now, he's got this young 30-year-old wife who um, basically she offers to go into the city to fetch the prescription. And she becomes somewhat besotted with Dr. Cream. I mean, obviously, she's got an older husband. And then she meets this doctor who's very handsome, very charming, very witty. And um, she makes excuses that, you know, every couple of weeks then she's saying to her husband, perhaps you need to, another dose and I'll go and fetch you some more pills. And she makes her, her trip into the city know goes and buys her dresses and she gets bird seed and she goes to the dentist so she's making it into a a couple of day trip every time that she goes and um subsequently starts an affair with uh, dr cream i don't know who was the instigator him or her but it it just you know he's he likes good looking ladies and uh it, and it happens the storm broke in chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Steeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. 
But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Raw lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So I've done episodes on 19th century scoundrels like this one before. Harry Hayward in Minneapolis comes to mind. A, a good-looking playboy who revels in being able to manipulate and control situations. And, and he tries to control this one, but, but it backfires on him. And the funny thing about this is, in, in this particular instance, he's not that interested in giving more strychnine to Julia to poison her husband. He really has no interest in murdering him. He, he's focused, as we've already established, on women with low morals. But it's it's Julia that talks him into helping her. Yeah, they, actually, the murder of a man is not Cream's signature. That's not what he's about. Because Daniel Stott, he doesn't see him as a vulnerable person, and it's vulnerable people that Dr. Cream goes after. So I think it was more pressure on the side of Julia Stott. And, you know, after the trial, I think we can really start to understand that when we look at the prison records, because we have um, O.H. Wright, who was Julia Stott's attorney during the trial. And, you know, after Cream had been in, in prison for several years, he turned around and said, you know what, I think he's serving a sentence for somebody else. And he believed that his client, Julia Stott, was actually responsible for the death of her husband. You see, Cream wasn't present when Daniel Stott died. It was actually Julia Stott that administered um, the pills. Cream does a pretty idiotic thing now, doesn't he? <laughs> All of this would have gone away, except Cream insists on sticking his nose into the matter, and he, he writes a message which ends up leading authorities right back to him. Yeah, he wrote to the coroner. What he was trying to do was pinpoint... Um, the, the death on Julia Stott, but actually um, it had the opposite effect. And they looked at him and they were like, well, hang on. You are the one that wrote the prescription. You're the one putting the dose into that prescription. 
Um, you're the one concealing it in the gelatin capsules and he is your patient. And so it actually, it, it did, <laughs> you know, it came back and bit him really because um, even though it was Julia Stott that administered it, um, because she turned state's evidence, it, it actually um, was, was cream that was incriminated. And it's so ironic, he's a cold-blooded murderer, as he proves time and time again, and yet the crime that puts him behind bars is the murder of the man who he didn't really want dead. No, that's right. And, you know, it came out later on, um, and it, it, all the time, you know, until I actually found the prison records, this hadn't been made public, but there was a, the neighbour of the Stotts, um, his name was DeWitt J. Edgecombe, and he actually wrote a statement for Cream's lawyer. And um, he actually said that all of the neighbours around Boone County and around Garden Prairie town, they actually thought that Julia Stott's actions were very, very suspicious. And, um, you know, first of all, she couldn't decide whether it was her that had found her husband or whether it was their daughter or, you know, and she, she left it a while. She left it half an hour before she even went and called anybody and raised the alarm. So I, from my point of view, I think you look at that and you think, well, perhaps she's really making sure that he's dead before she actually, you know, calls calls for help. So it was actually the neighbours that, that raised the point that she's very, very suspicious in the way that she's acting. And as soon as Cream's trial was over, she moved away so that nobody could find her. She changed her name and she moved away, um, which are not really the actions of an innocent person. Right, they're not. So your book is called Prisoner 4374, and this refers to the number assigned to Cream during his stay in Joliet Prison. Can you talk a little about his time there? Yeah, um, it was quite difficult for him, actually, because he's he's suffering from, obviously, his, his syphilis symptoms, and he'd been self-medicating before he went in there. Um you know, he, he used his opiates to control his symptoms. And so there was there was a few symptoms that um, became kind of unbearable for him during his time in there. And one of those is his constant headaches and migraines. And he's having nightmares. His his physical appearance deteriorated quite a lot. Now, if you've ever read anything in the past about Dr. Cream, um, we've kind of been led to believe that he was working in the prison pharmacy and that he had quite an easy time in there. But actually, since the the records um, have been released, um, we can see that he actually was transferred to the granite department. So that his his physical demeanour actually deteriorated in that way that he's under, you know, 12 hours of hard labour every day. It ground him down and um, he was half the man when he came out. Now, his eyesight um, deteriorated a lot during that time as well. He suffered from something called hypermyopia, which gave him a, a squint in his eye. But during the um, his time in there, his 10 years inside, the I don't know if you know, the rations, like the candles that you're given is one candle a month. So you're going to burn that, you know, very little. Now, Cream liked to read. He liked to write letters. He was constantly petitioning his lawyers. So he's spending a lot of time in the dark trying to read. And this has actually worsened his eyesight. So that's one of the first things that he had to correct when he came out because he was really struggling to see. So he's in intense labor. He's also had these 
you know, he's very, very frustrated with the fact that the the attorney is saying that, you know, well, Cream's serving a sentence for somebody else. You've also got the statement from the neighbour, but still the governor wouldn't release him. And um, he, he's getting very, very frustrated over that. So the, he's had a couple of times when he was put into solitary confinement because he literally just refused to do his work and he was um, he was punished for a few days at a time for that. So um, kind of being in, an insubordinate. So he didn't have an easy time at all. And um, he came out and he's quite a changed man. And I think when he came out, he was just hell bent on revenge. So the reason he gets out is that his sentence is commuted by the governor of Illinois, uh, a man named Joseph Pfeiffer. How does that happen? And who, who petitions on his behalf? Okay, well, his his lawyer was with him throughout petitioning and uh, obviously taking a good salary from it as well, <laughs> which the Cream family were paying for. Um, his brother has written several letters to the governor. Um, his brother, Daniel, was actually stating that, you know, the U.S. are going to be safe if Cream comes out because he's actually going to probably go back to England and you'll be rid of him and get to trying to get the, the family sympathy vote there as well. I think a lot, a lot to do with it is um, there's actually one petition from the British consul, um, Lionel Sackville West. Now, I can't quite ascertain as to the reason why that is in there. I don't understand why the British consulate would have been petitioning for somebody that was a Scottish Canadian. He, he essentially had Canadian citizenship for him to be released. So, you know, we have we have a bit of confusion there as to why. But there was also a lot of sympathy when Cream's uh, father died. He died just before he came out of prison and left him an inheritance. And so with everything put together... Eventually, the governor has looked at it and said, well, hang on, we've got we've got this evidence that perhaps it was actually Julia Stott that committed the murder. We've got the affidavits from the the neighbours. But there are pages and pages of people petitioning to get cream out. He had a lot of people on his side. I think one of the petitions is actually six sides long. There's, there's hundreds of names on it where people have signed saying that he should be freed. So Cream is released in 1891, goes back to Canada briefly to collect his inheritance, and then sails to England to start a new life, right? Yeah, yeah. And his syphilis symptoms are are pretty unbearable now, so he gets back on the opiates, and he readies himself for more murder. So where does he decide to live once he's in London, and how does he choose this neighborhood? Well, the natural place for him to go was um, to Lambeth. Um, he lived in Lambeth when he worked at St. Thomas's Hospital briefly, previously, at his time in London. That's an area that he knows. He's lodged there before. There are a lot of lodging houses with young doctors and students there. So that, that's, that's an area where he knows, he knows the alleyways, he knows, he knows the buildings, he knows the area. So that's, that's the place where he feels comfortable. So, um, it's not quite natural for him to go back there. And then you remember he's got his $16,000 inheritance money after he, he leaves Canada. He collects his inheritance before he goes to London. So he's had his new suits made up. He's feeling very smart. He doesn't actually need to work yet. So he can be just be a comfortable gentleman for a while um, while he's deciding 
what to do and obviously looking for his next victim. Where in London is Lambeth? It's in the south, south of the river. So he begins to date prostitutes, but doesn't kill any of them initially. He's kind of getting his footing and preparing, isn't he? Well, it's been a long time that he's been inside, and obviously he hasn't had any sexual contact with anyone in that time either. And you look at him, he realises he's not the handsome young man that he was. He, he's changed quite a bit, you know. He's, his stature is, is very thin, and he, he's, an, he's becoming an old man. He's, he's um, in his 40s, and he's, he's not the same guy, and he hasn't got the confidence. So in getting to know these women, they actually feel sorry for him, and they think that he's harmless. You know, they, he's, they know that he's a doctor, and that they, they look at him in a way that they actually feel sorry for him. And they think he'll be an easy client, you know, he's going to pay, and they'll be quite safe with him. So they actually have a, a sympathy um, for the, this strange little man that approaches them, so that they're not at all threatened by him. And I think Cream kind of uses that to his advantage. But he is in the beginning, he's not very, very comfortable. Um, it takes him several attempts before he actually finds his first victim. Can you talk about his time as the Lambeth Poisoner? Who does he meet and how does he murder? Okay, well, he's um, he meets a, a couple of prostitutes who... He he quite likes and he arranges to date and um, basically um, you know he he goes back with them to the rooms and he takes one to a hotel and he has a good time with them and he he meets them in in pubs sometimes when he he goes for a drink with them and he befriends them and then he's delivering these strychnine pills to them saying this is for your complexion or this is something to make you feel better you know and really. Giving, you know, giving them nice wine to wash it down with, whining and dining them. He's being very kind to them. He's being very nice to them. But ultimately, he gives them the pills and then he walks away. So he's not actually seeing them dying. He, he's just leaving them to die, which I think is very, very heartless of him. You know, he's it's not quick. These, these girls have got a prolonged death, very, very painful. They're in agony. And um, he's just basically walking away and leaving them. So he's got Ellen Donworth, he's got Matilda Clover, and then he's got two girls that he meets together, two very young 19-year-olds called Marsh and Shrivel. And um, he meets them and goes back to their room and he shares a supper with them. They have a tinned salmon and they have bottles of beer. And they, they make an evening of it, you know, and he, he sleeps with them both and enjoys himself. But then again, just before he leaves, he gives them the, the, the pills and he... Uh, he walks away, and they both die. So the psychology of this, to me, is just so interesting. Uh, unlike other serial killers, Cream doesn't want to see his victims die. He instead just wants to read about them in the newspapers after they're dead. Yeah, that's right. He, he does seem to get some kind of thrill about seeing his, his um, crimes in print. He's, he's always had that. He, he wants to become notorious. And, and you also see... a. a kind of um, a frustration in him when he um, he doesn't see anything in the newspapers and then he starts writing to um, I think we have Countess Russell we have um, Dr. Broadbent we have um, 
the W.H. Smith family. So he's writing to people, you know, um, trying to blackmail them just so that he could get a bit of notoriety and get those crimes into the newspapers. For many serial killers, murdering is an intimate thing. There's a rush or a release from the taking of someone's life, the physicality of it. But Cream disattaches himself from the physical aspect of the murders. He doesn't see the blood. He doesn't see the death. He just sees the article in the morning edition the next day documenting his deed. That That's all he needs. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't want that attachment. Um, he's quite unusual in that, actually. You know, he, he's happy to murder people, but he doesn't want to actually, not literally, like, have the blood on his hands, but he doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to be physically connected at the time of death. So he just walks away. And um, that was kind of his undoing in the end because he administered tablets to a lady called Lou Harvey that he'd arranged to meet, believed that she'd taken the pills, he walked away, but actually she'd thrown them over the embankment. And that was his undoing in the end, because he believed that she died, as with the other ones. And she hadn't, and she turned up at court to give evidence against him. So during this period of these murderous acts, he actually falls in love. Can you talk about his fiance and how they met? Yeah, he, he went out of the city for a while to, to um, have a break, get some country air, and he went to Berkhamstead. And um, he met a young lady called Laura Sabatini. Now, she's a, a very pretty, young, innocent girl who um, lived with her mother. And her mother was going slightly deaf. And Cream has, has wooed both Laura and her mother, actually. The mother thought, that, well, you know, this is, a, this is a true gentleman. And they had him round to dinner at the house and... Really, he was buying gifts for both of them, and they just thought that he was a wonderful, wonderful man and that he would make a, a wonderful husband for Laura. And Cream's also promising that, you know, he has to go back to Canada and sort out some business and sort out his finances there. There was a release of some more money from his father's estate. And he tells Laura that, you know, when he comes back, he's going to set her up. She wants to be a dressmaker and a fashion designer. And he tells her that he'll set her up in the West End in business when he comes back and um, they'll get married and live happily ever after. And I think he partly wants to believe that, to be honest. He knows he's getting ill and he, he knows that he, he needs to settle and have somebody to look after him. And I think he genuinely does have feelings for her. And once he falls in love, his urges to murder dissipate, don't they? They do. Yeah, yeah, they do. I think he's kind of... His point of going back to Canada is to put his affairs in order and then he's going to come back and find somewhere permanent to live and, and settle with Laura. Uh, and in the meantime, he gets caught. And so, um, you know, his his plans don't go the way that he wanted. But I, I think genuinely that that was what he decided to do, that he was going to settle down. I'm not going to say that he would have stopped murdering. I think it's always in him. He, he's been doing it for a long time. Um, but... Actually, you know, he's he really is in love. I think for the, the first and only time in his life, I think he's actually in love. As is with many of these dandified villains, <laughs> their downfall is hubris. Thomas Neal Cream had a big mouth and a big ego. Can you talk about what he does to get himself caught? Um, yeah, he's... I mean, the. I think the biggest mistake that he does is... Um, 
he he's he's accused a lot of people during his crimes, but those people are quite distant to him. But what he does do is accuse the son of a doctor um, who's actually a medical student. And um, this this gentleman, Harper, is living at the same lodging house in Lambeth as, as Dr. Cream. And he actually accuses him. So, you know, it's very, very close on his doorstep. So this is the the first mistake that he makes. Now, the second one, he became friends with a gentleman who was living above a photographic studio and, um, you know, a fellow American. And they start chatting and going out for drinks and having dinner and they become quite pally. But then, you know, Cream goes that little bit too far and he points out where the murders are and he points out um, details that haven't been in the newspapers. And this guy, he's friends with a, a British detective and he's um, he thinks, hang on a minute, you know, Dr. Cream knows a little bit more than he's saying here. And so they decide to keep an eye on him and, and watch where he's going and what he's doing. So he's tailed for a while. But what it is actually is his blackmailing, you know, his blackmailing letters and his notes that he's kept. He, he's, he's eventually caught in his own web. So give us some of the highlights of the trial, if you will. How does it unfold? Yeah, um, well, we have the, the the body of Matilda Clover was exhumed and um, they found that it was strychnine poisoning. But really, as I said, the undoing for him was this Lou Harvey, whom he thought that he'd successfully murdered, but actually she came to the court and um, she gave evidence to say, well, yes, this is the doctor. Um, there was also the the maid from Matilda Clover's house called Lucy Rose. And she gave evidence that she'd seen cream as the gentleman that was leaving the room in the lodging house as well. So there, there are, there are significant people there, you know, to give witness statements. And um, the trial didn't really last very long before he was found guilty. And yeah, poor guy got sentenced to death, but not poor guy, but (laughs) he got what he deserved in the end. But he he was he had quite a promising promising career as the Lambeth poisoner, but yeah, because of his own um, shouting about it and drawing attention to himself, it, he he got caught in the end. So, could you talk about the day of his execution, his purported famous last words, and the controversy that surrounds those words? Yeah, well, the night the night before. Um, You'll see in the book there's a letter that he's writing to um, Laura Sabatini asking her to um, not take any notice of, of of what the police are saying, that they're lying about him and that he didn't do it. And he's trying to make her believe that, you know, that he's innocent and he wants her to go. But I, by that time, she's actually realized that, you know, she's in deep trouble because she's actually been writing some of the letters on his behalf Um he asked her, he asked her to write letters as a favor and she's done it believing that it was something innocent and she realizes that you know if she actually goes to visit him she's going to be in big trouble so he's heartbroken at the end laura doesn't go the person that does turn up to visit him is his sister rachel and so they have a last kind of a last meeting and a last night and she's saying that you know she hopes that the lord will forgive him and that he'll find peace and she knows that's it there's going to be no reprieve he um has a bit of a restless night but really it's because you know he can't medicate anymore he's still getting his headaches and his nightmares and have his breakfast the next morning 
And it was actually, it didn't come out until 10 or 12 years after Cream was hanged that supposedly the hangman Billington had actually said that he'd shouted, I am Jack, as the scaffold was drawn. So there's there's nothing to support that, to be honest. Nothing at all. Throughout your book, there's a reference to a mysterious friend of Cream's, a man in England who goes by the name of R, who Cream suggests through the narrative has similar tendencies and urges as he does. Cream gets a note from R on the eve of his execution. And the timing is so odd and the contents of the note even more so. R sends his sympathy over Cream's circumstances and at the end of the note writes, well done. I have to ask you, was this fictionalized or did this really happen? I'll be honest with you, the whole the whole of the book, it, there's nothing fictionalized in it. That's why the book is a small book, because I've kept to the facts. And what is in it are things that have come from the prison archive that I had released that I've got here. So everything is fact in there. Now, this character, this R character, he is somebody that Cream met in London. And he is somebody that I've been investigating since. And... In about 12 months' time, I should be ready to reveal that. And that person, is. there is a distinct possibility that that person is related to the Ripper. The the fictionalised part that I did put, you know, is that he's actually saying goodbye, Jack, rather than I am Jack. Um, who knows what he said, you know? I'd, yeah, that made a good book, so I put that in the end of it. But the... The the person that, you know, that I think he's calling Jack, the person that I refer to as R in the story, he's a real person. And that's what I'm working on now. That's my current research. How exciting. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a lot of hard work to put it all together. Yeah. So again, I'm coming into this with very little knowledge of Jack the Ripper. But as we've already talked about, the the way Cream murdered was far different than the way Jack the Ripper did. Why is Cream considered by some to be the real Jack the Ripper? I, I think really it was one of the main reasons is because of his horseshoe tie pin. He he used to wear it. It's his favorite piece of jewelry. Um, and then we have the description from George Hutchinson. Who, who, the, when the last Ripper victim, Mary Jane Kelly, the horseshoe tie pin features there with, within his description. So I think that's one of the points. And... You know, you're right. It's far, very far removed. Cream had the surgical skill, but it's just not his MO. It's just not something that he would have done. He didn't like to get his hands dirty. He's a clean, kind of a clean uh, poisoner, and he walks away. He would not be one to have to do a frenzied attack and, and murder in that, in that way. It's just not Cream. And he had an alibi. He did have an alibi. He was in jail during the the time the Ripper murders happened. Yeah. And that's quite a piece of evidence that you've produced. Yeah, you see, it's it's always been presumed that he, he could have been bribing the governor. He had resources. He could have bribed the governor to get out, which actually, if we look at the fact, he didn't receive his inheritance money until after he left the jail because he had to go up back up to Canada to sign the release papers. So... There's that. We also have that, you know, he, he could have had a double. 
and somebody else could have served his sentence. There's nothing to support that. So actually, it is pinpointing. The the fact that he's in jail, it's been there all the time. It's just nobody has looked in the prison archives, which is quite, for me, it was quite unbelievable that they'd just been sitting there and they'd not been opened. Mm. I would have thought that was the first place that you would look, you know, that, okay, we want to know where he was. We need to prove it. Let's open, let's have a look in the archive. But no, nobody did. So uh, there was a lot of presumption, but no actual proof. So that was something that I decided to do. We we talked at the beginning of the interview about your reason for using this first-person autobiographical style. You, you've done a, a noble job of attempting to recreate the language of the time while still keeping it accessible to modern readers. And, and I do commend you for taking a risk in writing it this way. And your book is, is, is a fast and engaging read. Yeah. I wanted to make it a page-turner, but I didn't want to make it just for ripperologists. I wanted to make it an easy read for, you know, Joe Bloggs on the street. I wanted a, a book that everybody could enjoy, but also to stay true to the facts. So um, that's kind of why I've, I've written it in that way. Where can we point people who want to learn more about you and your work? Okay, my books are on Amazon. They're with Noble and Barnes. They're in Waterstones bookshops in the UK. I, I've also started on a series of novels. I appeared at the Jack the Ripper conference last year in August where I was a speaker. I do I do various events. I was at Scotland Yard last month. So if you have a look on Facebook, AJ Griffiths Jones and um, author page, have a look on that. I'm also on Twitter, author AJ66. And uh, people can find out about my events and things on there. And, and also I, I do up, update my progress on my research so that... Um, you know, you can see what's going on at the moment. Thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me today. You're welcome. Thank you. This has been another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm your host, Eric Rivenus, and please have a safe tomorrow. Party's happy hour isn't your average happy hour. From 2 to 5 p.m., double sliders are only a buck 25. Call it a charbroiled hour, a double beef hour, a whole lot of melty cheese hour. Call it what you want. Happy hour at Hardy's is a good call. Offer for a limited time and only between 2 and 5 p.m. Price and participation may vary. Tax not included.